Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, our specialist place and environments teams work globally with architects, developers, cities, corporations and governments, delivering successful human-centered solutions across place visioning, property branding and strategic wayfinding and signage. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers. Today I catch up with the husband and wife team, Hannah and Jock Gammon, co-founders of the living infrastructure business, JungleFi. JungleFi deliver complex and innovative green walls, roofs and facades in the built environment. Known internationally for their work with the French botanist Patrick Blanc in delivering the world's tallest vertical garden at one central park in Sydney. Listen in as we talk about how the business started, their innovative breathing wall technology and the health benefits that come from junglefying our cities. Hey, hey, Jock and Hannah, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you guys doing? Going good, thank you. Thanks for having us. Doing very well, thank you. Oh, that's that's cool. It's so nice to uh, to see. You. We're we're all in lockdown again here in Sydney. Uh, number three. Yeah, number three, and I think we're into our fifth week now, our sixth week, with mm-hmm. and potentially another month ahead of us. But what's really cool, well, what's not cool is we can't go into each other's houses, which is annoying because I just found out that you guys live around the corner from me and um, in Avalon. So it's kind of, we're literally like a, a few houses away from each other. <laughs> so this should, in theory, be the best quality recording um, that we've had so far. Short distances, that's right. Yeah. How long have you guys lived up here for? Um, since 2015. So that makes six years. Wow. Yeah, I've only been up here about eight months, but it's a spectacular area. And I can like see, it? yeah, and I can see why uh, you guys specifically who are so passionate about botany and, you know, plants and life and wildlife, etc. Greenery would, would see this is a really attractive place. Is that what is that what drawn you to living here? Uh, Avalon is actually a, a slightly a happy accident for us. You know, it's when we li- used to live in the eastern suburbs and it's a kind of an area that not a lot of Sydney siders actually knew about um, until very recently, I feel. And so we uh, got invited here for um, join a friend's weekend and absolutely fell in love with the place. Uh, like you described, it's so full of uh, wildlife and lots of water around and greenery. So after that fateful weekend, we pretty much decided we were going to come up. We sold our house in three weeks, and in six weeks after that, we were up here uh, renting a place and looking for our own home. We actually lived in a suburb in um, in the east called Daisyville, which was Australia's first um, planned suburb, and it was designed around a garden suburb. So it was nice and leafy and green, and uh, I was adamant I'd never leave the eastern suburbs, never travel north of the bridge, but, um, yeah, it didn't take much to changed my mind once we got up here and saw how beautiful this place is yeah and it's not that far away it's only 50 minutes on a good day no. so you know totally i remember commuting from brighton to london it took a lot longer than that um in those days you never think twice about it but 
Yeah. Anyways, it's a world away. And that's why we're here, which is really nice and have the best of both worlds. It could be worse places to be in lockdown, that's for sure. So we're very <laughs> blessed and, and uh, thankful for that. How did you guys meet, firstly? I mean, you're not from here, right, originally? I'm an Aussie, and uh, like most Australians, we do the, uh, the the trip to the UK as a, I guess, a rite of passage once you finish university. So I was uh, traveling traveling in uh, London. I worked at a, a web design company over there. I was an accountant by training originally, commerce degree, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the girls working there was was Hunter's flatmate. So we met at a, a East End London bar, uh, and um, I didn't know the Finnish were particularly gullible. Uh, they're very sincere. They take people for on their on their face value. But I happened to tell Hunter I was the piggyback champion of, of Australia on my my European tour, and uh, she wow. she fell for that. And uh, yeah. Jump and straight on your, your back. friend carry me around. He said he had a sore leg or something. An injury, so I couldn't carry it. Oh, my God. Yeah. What, no, from, was... from, from that kind of, from that sport or from just something else? Yeah, and it turns out also that uh, the Finnish have a tradition where a wife-carrying competition where you win your wife's weight in beer. So there was a few things that uh, <laughs> were, were meant to be that night, I think. Yeah, you guys obviously hit it off right away. And how long did you live in London for? So only about a year we uh, <clears throat> until we decided that we were going to go um, traveling and actually came to Australia for uh, attend Jock's um, sister's wedding. No, we so, were together for a year. You've been yeah. there for five years prior. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but we lived in London for together for a year until yeah. we came for a six-week trip, which we're still on mm. 20 years later. That first, <laughs> that first trip to Australia is incredible, isn't it? Yeah, mind-blowing, really. I remember Hannah waking up to the sound of kookaburras and there was just, we're staying at a friend's house and uh, she was just blown away by the, the sounds in the morning, which were normal to me. But for that, for Hannah, it was just uh, this whole, whole new worldly experience. Yeah. And how does it compare to, uh, you know, Finland, Finland lifestyle, Hannah? Well, they say actually that uh, the Aussies are Finns have a lot of similarities and um, whilst it's, vastly different in its climate and things like that they both are very bush people and appreciative of the natural world um and slightly mad and drink a lot so i think there's uh, some parallels um but uh yeah other than that you know there are days still today you know after 20 years where i look outside see the palm trees and hear the the birds and I, i feel far away from home um, so it is, it is different, uh, culturally quite different also, but that's okay. I, I love an adventure. So that's what life is. Yeah. And, and you studied, did you study in Finland or did you study in London? Where did you do your uh, training? Yeah. So no, I, I did my usual high school. Um, I went and exchanged to Canada during my high school, but then, um, having finished high school in Finland, um, that was aligned with the time that the European borders opened, which meant that uh, education became free for everyone in EU. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, because of that, I was able to apply for different universities and apply to a, a bunch of them in the UK. And I had no idea which university was what. And I went to the consular in, in Finland. I said, which one of these should I go to and they said that one which was imperial college and that's uh, how i ended up in imperial to study um molecular biology wow and what why why did you do that <laughs> what, what was the interest there in the well biology because i love the natural world i'm quite um 
a bit of a thinker, I would say. I always wonder why things are the way they are. So I think there's a natural sort of mm -hmm. um, path for me into biology. And then the molecular biology really was, um, I think that time the D, uh, genes and DNA was becoming more spoken of. So it really sparked my interest as to, you know, what's, what's what's what are those things that drive the, the life and what's the life force that we actually can't see so that's kind of how i went that path yeah we well, can see now how you guys are a perfect combination and obviously what was to become jungle fire you can see why that all that all came about let's talk about that in a in a second um obviously no, just, on. just on that point go the strange part is that um yeah hannah with her science background and me with a business background in our business now hunter does the business side and i do the, the science side so we've uh, yeah, <laughs> had a big reversal in uh, you know our training and roles at work well how did that how did that come about let's just talk about how you you know eventually went from london to australia and then you know building your business was there other businesses and other things you did in between then so when I returned, I was still, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I hated my job in accounting and bookkeeping and uh, I didn't see much future for it, but I didn't know where I wanted to go. So I went and studied environmental science at Sydney Uni for six months. Um, that didn't float my boat either. And then we lived in an apartment that had a small garden and I just found myself gravitating towards that. Uh, and then one day the, the light bulb moment happened and uh, I realised that gardening was what I wanted to do. I got fired from my my job because I wasn't committed. I was getting in at nine and leaving at five and um, they said I wasn't focused enough. So it was a council job. yeah, it was a bookkeeping job. Uh, and so I got the, got the sack from there and started landscaping the next day. Um, I'd already had my sort of feelers out, but it was from then on, I'd never looked back. It's really what I love and, and can continue to do it well into the future. And it really sort of bowled well for our plans because sort of the plan to move to Australia wasn't fully considered it kind of happened um that was the the plan we had around for us being able to then visit back back europe and go back home and spend a bit more time was to have job to have his own business and actually allow us the flexibility in life so that was also the driving force in sort of setting up our first company which was called the um green rooms gardens and landscapes wow and how long did you have that for Started in 2003, Hannah was working in the molecular biology space as a salesperson. She joined in, she quit her job in 2007. Uh, and then we continued to run green rooms together until 2009. Um, I then went off and sort of worked on jungle fire business, our, our current business. And then Hannah continued with, with green rooms um, for another few years. After that, we sold it back in 2015, I think it was. 14, yeah. Yeah, wow. Okay, well, can we let's just explain Jungle Fire because that's a really cool name, and I know my team has been working with you guys on your uh, brand uh, refresh and positioning, etc., which has been really exciting. But how how did that come about? The kind of starting that business, and and what is that business for the listeners out there? So Jungle Fire, um, it being in working in the residential market originally with green rooms, um, us, we doing landscaping and, and garden maintenance within that space. Being both quite ambitious people, entrepreneurial people, we wanted to to take plants further. We saw our cities needed to change. Um, we saw with the impact of climate change, even back in 2009, starting to become a, a very important topic. We had the, our first child then as well. Um, so our focus was how do we how can we actually have a, an impact on the way our cities are being built? They can't continue on that 
current trajectory. Uh, and that's where Jungle Fire was was born from. And our, our sole purpose is to um, cultivate critical connections between people, places and plants. And I think it really encapsulates exactly what we're, what we're doing as a business um, because we have, as humans, we've lost that connection with nature in our cities. Our cities are what we're calling human zoos, full of concrete, full of glass, um, and we need to reverse that. Yeah. Um, and obviously the, there's uh, maybe talk a bit about how, what, what effect plants has on, on human beings, you know, you guys being experts on that. I mean, we talk about how greenery is so important for, for your kind of soul and calming influence, et cetera, in nature. Do you want to expand on that? So I guess one of the, the main words in this space, and uh, I imagine a lot of people are starting to hear it a lot more, is, um, is the word biophilia. Uh, so it's that human's innate connection to nature. We as humans have evolved in nature, with, whether it's in the, the savannas, in the forests. Um, we've grown up around nature. All of our DNA is linked to nature. Um, we need plants to survive, whether it's through the oxygen they produce for the food that we, we gather. Um, plants are such a critical piece of what we are as humans, but we have lost that space that that touches as we develop cities. Um, and so that, that innate connection is really what we need to be bringing back into everyone's daily lives. Yeah, but also the, uh, the purpose is twofold, you know, plants um, really aid to, um, the, to bring back and build back that reconnection of humans to, to our ancestry, which is the natural world. And, helped us to feel the sense of belonging, which I feel that people have lost. And mm. through that sense of uh, being part of something, you know, there's a, it's like a domino effect. You then start to breed the sense of care for, for things, you know, not just yourself or your immediate surrounds and your people, but, but everything, your community, your animals, the, the natural world. And you, you really develop a sense of obligation uh, towards other living things but also um there's the side of what we just the physical side of what plants do so Jock, you want to touch upon the, all the plant uh, functions that plant perform yeah so for us it's plants obviously look beautiful but they do so much more mother nature's been doing it for billions of years plants obviously removing carbon dioxide to produce oxygen we we know through our extensive research with the uh, university of technology sydney that um plants and the microbes that live within the soil or the growing media are fantastic at removing pollutants so the air pollution that we have in our cities can be pretty much eliminated or greatly removed by the use of plants and these microbes that live there so really understanding the the benefits of, of what mother nature can do applying it to our cities reconnecting us with nature um is is really a um there's not too many ways that we can knock it. I think we just don't understand it enough. We, we sort of like to, to push back on it. The operational costs of looking after plants are some of the, the main challenges, but we need to re refocus. Let's look at plants as a critical piece of infrastructure in our cities, um, rather than just a, a nice add on that would still, unfortunately governments and other organizations and developers look at that's how they're perceived. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I mean, what, it's incredible how nature is that way, that it kind of uh, gets rid of all the pollutants, et cetera. I mean, if it didn't, we would have been toast ages ago. <laughs> but We wouldn't I, be here, I don't think. No, I don't even, I mean, do you think it was designed ever to be able to cope with this amount of pollution that we're creating? It obviously I think, is. But. I mean, this is a, the amazing part of plants and the resilience. Uh, I mean, plants adapt to different conditions. We, we, one of our projects, One Central Park, we know that the plants go in there and they change 
shape and, and structure over, over time because of windier conditions and plants are adaptive over more polluted environments. The more pollution we have, the more food there is for these microbes and bacteria and they, they grow and accelerate and amplify the pollution removal capacity. Extra carbon dioxide is actually good for plants to continue to grow. So it's a, again, that, that resilience and adaptability of plants is such a critical piece. And if we can bring that into our cities, we can also then make our cities more resilient and adaptive to the, to the uncertain funny. future that we've, we've got coming. Do you think humans are aware of the positive effects it has on you, uh, you know, in terms of nature and greenery? Or, or do, are they aware that when they're feeling you know, low or exhausted that, that they're, they're not exposed to enough of that? Do you think that's like, it's not until someone tells you, hey, you should go for a walk and go, go, among, go lie in the grass or something that you perhaps don't think. Because technology, I mean, we're on, we're on Zoom now um, and uh, through a satellite, no doubt. And... Um, you know, with this incredible technology, but which is very mechanical, it's very cold, and it's not giving us any, it's giving us a, a false sense of connection, not a real connection, I guess, as in terms of human beings one-on-one -on -one facing each other. But um, yeah, what, what, what is your kind of research around that? Are you doing a lot of research with UTS on this subject matter? Uh, it's definitely the next holy grail, I think, in the uh, plants and humans is understanding that social impact of plants. But, you know, I think we have to come back to the, the good old uh, human behavior, which is the fascinating topic itself. You know, you look at us as a species and and really um, and how how we behave and how some of the behaviors we exhibit, um, we need to kind of start cracking in order to understand why why we behave the certain way that we do but the um i think with with humans is we love the natural world but we are just uh not aware of it like you said mm. and i think part of what we want to do and try and do is is point it out to people say you know imagine when you felt the most happiest the most relaxed you know where was it um, was it in front of your phone or was it in front of the TV or was it on the beach or was it in the forest? So it, it, we really need to, I guess, as a species, really learn to look back on our own behavior and start to analyze. And, and I think that is part of this growth um, that we would love to see as a, you know, from a very macro level of the pivot and how do we, as a humans, pivot from where we are to, to a better future and, I think plants have a huge role to play in that, but it is a big picture. It's a topic on itself, you know. How do we wake ourselves up to the potential of, of reconnection to the plants? Mm. Um, but absolutely, the, the research topics are of such. There's a, um, a, a Swedish guy who's really spearheading that side, um, but it's the next five to ten years that we're going to see a lot more research into, into that mm. um, area. Well, everyone's focusing on, uh, well, prior to the pandemic, everyone's focusing on city living uh, and a migration to the cities and, and how the, the cities are the fastest growing areas for living and working uh, across the world. Um, pandemic has kind of made people have a rethink and, you know, some people have moved out of the city to, to, to amongst nature. But um, with the kind of more, I guess, congested living or living in, in tall structures, skyscrapers, uh, large buildings and other places, um, such as Central Park, which we worked on together, I guess the, they could, without what your influence bringing into the, the greening of these buildings, without that, they're a very cold, 
places, aren't they? I mean, they're just metal, concrete, steel, wood, etc. Yeah. Um, obviously, down to the individual to put a plant in there uh, if they want. <laughs> but when you look at Central Park, it's just like one Central Park. It's just like, oh my God, that it's how, how, how many stories was that? Is that like six? Uh, Thirty. 34 stories on the taller one and 17 stories on the on the smaller one but uh, there's 98,000 plants on the facade of that building and it's uh, um, unprecedented in terms of its type in the world uh, and I think like you said it, it's such a to, to be living in a city which is just glass and steel and concrete is cold it has no soul to it cities are cities are fantastic and with the population explosion that we're seeing cities are going to be a critical part in order for us to exist as a as a species but we just need to change how they're how they're built we can't keep expanding out into the peri-urban fringe otherwise we're smashing our biodiversity we're smashing our our green spaces and it, it's going to make our cities hotter it's going to cause a whole host of um continual issues we know the western suburbs of sydney some of the school playgrounds have up to 70 degrees on the asphalt and their astroturf because they don't have trees they've, they've wow. sort of been built on existing farmland and if we continue to expand we're going to continue to create these suburbs where, where no one's going to be able to live or want to live and so redesigning our cities whether it's through retrofits or designing new buildings um, to be resilient for future climate change um, is really where we where we need to go and there's plenty of great architects and other organizations around there really making this move and it's whilst it's scary it's also exciting to see that we as humans can can pivot yeah, and I think, but I think it does go hand in hand with us ourselves challenging ourselves, you know, because people still talk about, oh, but, you know, does that mean there's going to be insects? And, oh, my God, I, I don't want insects and I don't want this and that. And say, so, well, you know, that is being part of nature. You know, they all have critical components to play. So I think that's that's the education piece that has to go in parallel with what Jock's talking about is that we become more more accepting and understanding that it's a it's a very intricate system that can't work without all of its components mm. often a situation like this uh in in my experience is kind of brought about by a visionary client um dr quick uh from fraser's um was an incredible guy to work with um and we i don't know how many years ago now it must have been like what 13 years ago now maybe yeah, a long time ago. It was basically an old brewery, a massive site. There was no brewery, Truman Brewery, and it was a hole in the ground for years and years, and it was hoarded off. Um, and I remember him going to, we pitched on the project, and he um, showed us visuals of what he was going to create, and we're going, oh my god, you know, Sydney hasn't seen that kind of development of that scale before. And what is this crazy, crazy building with a you know covered in plants? It's like. First time I'd seen it, and I was just like, that's crazy. This guy's incredible. He's either crazy or a visionary. I mean, he's obviously a visionary, and it's been pretty impressive to see, you know, see that once it was all developed, to see it was exactly the same as the vision in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I've, just, I've never seen that before in a development. We've done a lot of developments over the years, but I've never, they often change and evolve. Uh, but to see that, that vision and, and it actually created almost exactly was just phenomenal. And obviously, you guys played a major part in that. Jean Nouvel, the architect, incredible architect from France. Um, uh, the heliostat um, sticking out on the top of the building was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. The first I've ever seen. Well, it's the first in Australia, probably. I don't think there's anyone's done that since. But mm -hmm. um, just, just an incredible project to be part of.
Um, how did your involvement come about with that one? Yeah, that was when we first um, became aware of that project. I think Jungle Fire was uh, very, very young. There was three of us in the business. Uh, we built a handful of green walls and we heard about this project, One Central Park, and uh, not being one to, to shy away from elements of risk and, uh, and and jumping in the deep end, we put our hand up and said, we're the, the green wall experts and uh, we're, we're here to help you make this become a reality. Jean Nouvelle had worked with um, the the pioneer of the modern uh, modern day Greenwall, Patrick Blanc. Um, if you haven't seen or heard of Patrick Blanc, he's a phenomenal botanist from Paris. Um, he he's also an artist. Um, he doesn't drink water because water's for plants. He only drinks champagne. Oh um, my god! Yeah. And he's got green hair, hasn't he? He's got green hair, yeah. green fingernails, and oh he's quite the eccentric god. character. Yeah. Um, but like I said, his knowledge of plants and uh, was was outstanding. So we had the pleasure of. Of working with him, uh, also with Fraser's and Sekisui House, the the the, yeah. the developers who had the foresight and vision to really push with this project because it was it did cost more than a typical build, but they saw that this is how we need to be building these mm. projects. So we put our hand up. We were successful, and um, then it was right right now we're going to work out how we're going to do this. We we're dealing with two hundred and fifty page contracts like we'd never seen before. <laughs> so this is a whole new. Whole new world. Um, you, you pass it on to Hannah, I hope. Well, she was there supporting me, and I, I remember the, the <laughs> tears. And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was it was one of those things that close to close to sinking us. But um, yeah. I, again, it's we call it our our monument project. It was the one that sort of launched us into giving us the the credibility that we we knew what we were doing. We knew that we could do this. There was that many architects and landscape architects just waiting for this to. To fail. And not just for us, but for the industry, I think it has been the beacon of light and has demonstrated that, you know, it's not just a fantasy, but it can with some, you know, clever thinking and, you know, a lot of people collaborating and uh, disciplines coming together, things like this can work. Mm. And like you said, it would not be what it is without those plans. No, no, it definitely wouldn't be. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I think in the beginning, a lot of the conversations were like, oh, well, this is what we're going to do, but we, I don't know, we don't know if it's going to work. It, 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 they could all die, um, which I'm sure some of them did die, did they or not, at some stage? Oh, yes. Was it, was, it, is it, was it a lot of trial and error with that? We had, uh, it was, there was a, it was actually Hunter's birthday during the middle of the construction phase, and we planted up, I think, 70 or 80% of the walls, and they were, I think, about probably, eight or nine months out from opening and I got a call on one Saturday morning. I remember it so clearly. It was a windy August day and uh, the guys were on site and they said, oh, Jock, there's a problem with some of the plants we planted. Well, it was a Monday morning. Some of the plants we planted on the weekend aren't looking too good and uh, it seems that someone's turned off the water. And I said, oh, can you just stand back and have a look at the rest of it? And they, they just, the expletives that came out of their mouth, someone had turned the water off on Friday, hadn't told us. Uh, over the hot weekend, some of these plants, I think we lost close to 20,000 plants on this fateful day. Oh. Some of these plants had had seed sourced from the deserts of Western Australia, the highlands of Tasmania, and had been growing for 18 months, only to be knocked out in um, the space of 48 hours. And so, it was... Um, so what's the link with Hannah's birthday? Is it her fault? Yeah. <laughs> Just the... <laughs> It helps me to remember. Oh, uh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, it, it has been such a learning curve. You know, you take all that and you go back and figure out what 
what not to do next time. So mm. it has been absolutely invaluable to us um, and to the industry again, because, you know, we've all drawn so much from it. Yeah. And whilst we, we helped build it, we've also had the, the pleasure of maintaining it for the last seven years. So we've, we've seen what plants work. We've seen what types of soil works. We, we know what are the best ways to access. And this is now what we take to our, we're doing a lot of consulting work at the early stage and design of projects that we can help to, to steer these projects in the right direction so that we're not making these same mistakes. And I think we, and we're seeing it now is that architects and developers are, are taking these steps. They're putting, putting their nuts on the line and, and really wanting to um, push the boundary and willing to take the risk because we need to be taking these risks. We can't yeah. continue with the status quo. Um, and with with uh, three hundred plus tenants, uh, there's like three hundred plus apartments. I think there. Um, is there is there tenants that just don't like plants, or plant, there's the tenants that want to grow more plants? I mean, what what's going? How do you manage that situation? Interesting, and it's a directive that we we push uh, suggest also on other projects is that the tenants don't have access to maintain or look after their gardens because a lot of people move into yeah. apartments to get away from their garden and a lot of apartments are also for rental people. So we saw one project many years ago where they said, no, you guys can install it, but we're going to have the residents look after the garden. We're going to have them water it. And within probably two or three weeks, large percentage of the plants have died. And I think it's a really important piece is to, um, to draw the line between um, providing that connection, but also then allowing people to, have their own greenery and, and connect with with plants, and it's a it's a difficult one to manage because yes, some people want to be able to touch and feel and grow their own thing in that space, but others don't. So it's it's that balance within an apartment building that we we need to manage. Yeah, and there's nothing worse than feeling like you've killed something. Um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, plants are wonderful, but they do take you do you do take care, right? Um, mm. I think the other thing is too is just like I think people locally or have realized that to plant local indigenous plants plants not exotic plants from overseas like I think uh, you know like it's just been there seems to be a change in the kind of landscaping uh, these days where you want to create a landscape which is doesn't need a huge amount of maintenance it's an interesting point that one and it's um, we share a slightly different view because native plants in their natural environments are, are very successful but when we create city environments where you've got pavement and we don't have a lot of rainfall coming into the ground we need to we've got polluted environments as we spoke about we've got a whole host of other challenges that often don't make native plants suitable for the city context um, and also councils tend to look for a range of plants that are low maintenance drought tolerance but with that comes limited diversity so all of a sudden okay. we don't have any plants that are flowering in winter time or and then therefore we've got no food for the the native bees and insects to feed on so we have a, a approach and also councils like the city of melbourne they actually are encouraging the planting of of exotic species just to overcome that challenge and we're seeing that again with the city of sydney so a predominant mix of natives but adding those exotics in there to, to fill in the gaps um, throughout the year uh, it made me think that the, you know one central park they must be the best kept plants in the country <laughs> so like, they certainly get a lot of love but then we have yeah. challenges of actually getting to the plants so whilst they're um whilst we've got people on site the the building maintenance unit the window cleaning baskets are broken down x percentage of time and you can't get to them and there's a whole host of other challenges that go with that um 
Well, it's a very interesting kind of engineering uh, problem, isn't it, that you guys solved with making that work. How did that impact your business? Because um, obviously it was early days and that was a significant project. Did it? Was it a real positive impact on your business? Or, or was it something that was uh, quite scary? <laughs> I think it did all of the above, uh, and we're, we're, it's 2013. I think it was uh, officially opened, and we're still. I'm still giving talks about one central park. So that that far far on, it's still an iconic project um, that is still still being talked about both locally and internationally. So let's talk about what have what have you done since? Um, and obviously, that would have created more opportunities similar to that, I, I guess. There hasn't been another one central park uh, built yet. There's some really exciting ones that we're involved in in the in the pipeline uh, that are really taking it to the the next scale again. Um, the project I'm most proud of is uh, is actually a car park project that we did in uh, Manly Vale again on the northern beaches. But this is reimagining how we can really lock into the or utilize the functionality of, of plants and again our breathing wall technology which is where we can use the plants and the microbes to clean the air so we've covered a, a car park in our breathing wall technology and we actually use the plants to filter the air from the, the car park and the surrounding main road um, and it really relates to the um the um, building functionalities into the cities you know sydney has great challenges in building a livable city you know we all spend a bucket of time in the car and and things like that so there's a lot of these problems we're trying to solve um, and infrastructure obviously plays a key part but infrastructure is notoriously ugly you know it is mm. just blocks and blocks of concrete and grayness and i think that's where um we've been very successful in building um this particular car park is that it actually is great to look at you know and it is a project that really um, we saw the public sentiment towards plants really affect government decision making and actual sentiment towards this ugly, traditionally ugly infrastructure. So it was really successful. Yeah, I catch the the bus that was built as part of the Beeline bus service, which is an express bus to the the city. And I catch that bus home, and I sit behind people, and I still hear them point and, and talk about this car park on the way home, and it uh, it's really humbling to, to hear that these types of projects it's a car park but it can have a positive impact on on people's lives is that the one in worrywood yeah a bit, a bit further down from worrywood if you go um vale yeah yeah Manly vale. Manly vale. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i've seen it it's fantastic let's just talk about also your uh you're doing a lot of research and science around what goes into what you do uh, can you talk a bit a bit, bit about your partnership with uts Sure. The, for us, research has always been a critical part of what we do. We're not a business that we're, it's about being a sincere business and an honest business. So we don't want to make claims about what plants can do. We can't back them by research. So we, we partnered with UTS uh, back in 2014. We started with them. Uh, we, we invested um, a significant amount of money at that stage of our business and then also uh, got some government funding to embark on a, a research project looking at how plants can be used to, to clean air. Um, a lot of research has been done by NASA, uh, but also um, the Green Building Council and other organisations as to the use of plants, but that was kind of getting towards the end of its benefits. Uh, we came to UTS with our green wall technology that we use fans to move polluted air, and the, the relationship we've had since then has been fantastic. We've got I think we're up to 17 peer-reviewed scientific papers at the moment, more than any other 
company in our industry in the world and really leading in terms of that that functionality of the clients, mm. particularly around air quality. Air quality, we're also looking at noise um, pollution and how do you reduce that through greenwash. And excitingly, we are, you know, we hope to be studying um, HVAC and plants soon, which would have a huge impact in that built environment in terms of energy use. Um, Etc. Yeah, can we can we be using plants to offset the energy use? Air conditioning in our cities uses forty percent of the energy at the moment. Mm-hmm. Can we be using plants to remove those pollutants that the air conditioning systems would would yeah. do? Mm-hmm. And on top of the science, I think what's also really important is that um, which we are currently conducting is a study or or really research into the return on investments or actually putting some dollar amounts of, of plant benefits. Um, mm. We talk about things very um, empirically. Um, we know that it makes people feel good, but oh. uh, we feel that there's a huge opportunity to be investing in um, in understanding the, the cost benefit and the return on people's investment and what can it, what can it really do for people oh. as an investment. How does one jungle fire their home? What's the best way for people to jungle fire their home? We know that a lot of people have been jungle firing their home since the COVID lockdown. Um, for us as a business, it's been quite difficult to find indoor plants because everyone's um, suddenly taken to indoor gardening, but I'm hearing a lot of stories about uh, mixed, mixed successes. So our recommendation, and it's whether you're gardening indoors or outdoors and you're new to it, is always start small. Don't go and turn your whole backyard into a vegetable garden because you'll find you have a fantastic crop for the first season and then everything will be struggling the one after that. You'll get disheartened, you'll think it takes too much time and then you'll go back to your old way. So start in a pot, start in, start with a, a, a robust indoor plant, uh, fiddle leaf fig or a, a, a devil's ivy, something like that, and then learn from that and then expand your, your repertoire after that. But once you... Once you have the successes, um, you get hooked. I think. Is, mm. uh, and I can I can witness because I've I've watched Jock uh, develop and hone in on his craft of. Um, so we have a deal that Jock grows the food and I cook it, and he's been doing that for you know, pretty much most of the times we've met and. Uh, um, much to the annoyance of all the grannies in uh, Daisyville, he uh, won all the council awards for his edible gardens um, when we lived there. <laughs> um, but I, I can really vouch for that. I think small pots with nice herbs, um, it is such a vastly different food that you pick from your garden versus that you buy from in plastic bags from Woolies shelf. Um, yeah. So doing, you know, small pots of mint, you know, you can't kill a mint. Uh, so just small little success, baby steps. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it absolutely does taste different. I've got some rosemary growing behind my house here. And um, uh, when I'm doing a roast chicken, there's nothing better than using fresh rosemary. Um, is it possible to kill a cactus? I've got a bunch of cactuses. I'm worried that I might kill them, drown them. Very easily, yeah. They're, yeah. they're probably one of the easier ones to kill. They can rot from too much watering, and that's the main main issue with indoor plants is people overwater them. So just stick your finger into the top two centimeters of soil. If it comes out with dirt on the end of it, then it's it's got enough hydration. If you stick it in and it comes out clean or dusty, then you need to give it some water. Yeah. Well, are, are plants designed to be in a house 
or do they need do they i mean obviously what critical is getting the right light i guess lights and light and water um uh, the office we're sitting in now there's lots of plants in the background we've got a heater in here but i i miss them every every morning it's uh, it's just part of it keeps helps to keep the humidity in the space comfortable for us as humans but it also then makes the plants thrive uh, so just treat them if you're comfortable then your plants are likely comfortable as well and you know everyone probably remembers their moms and grannies saying you got to talk to the plants so plants can definitely thrive indoors but they do take care they're living things um wow and what what do you have to say to them but whatever it's on your mind Oh, I'm talking to my dogs. That's probably enough, I reckon. I think if I start talking about plants, I might get locked up. Um, but that's true. People do have said that over the years. I've heard people mention yeah. that before. I mean, my, my family, um, my parents are huge tree huggers, and they literally, in a park, they go up and hug a tree. And um, they definitely cry when they see a tree being chopped down and, uh, or even being trimmed. Um, so they're living, they're living things, aren't they? I mean, that's... They, they do the question is have they got feelings do you reckon they've got feelings and well, i think they know that um plants and trees talk to each other through the fungi that live within the soil so there is a whole neural network going on there that we just uh, we don't know about or we're starting to understand but i think definitely we're all electrons and uh, and and neutrons wow, right. and so we we are able to communicate and connect with each other just on a different level wow um, you're working on a, a similar scale project to One Central Park. In fact, it's bigger, right? Down in Melbourne called South Bank by Beulah. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to having a mega green spine. Um, we had the guys, the architects on the podcast, which is coming out, I think, next week um, uh, from UN Studio in um, Holland. Uh, ben Van Berkel and Sander Velsus on the podcast mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And, and they designed the building along with Cox uh, in Melbourne. So what, what was the purpose of the Green Spine? It's an amazing project, South Bank by Bueller. It's, it's really taken architecture to the next level. I, my uncle, who's now since passed away, he, he was an architect and he was horrified when we were working on one central park. He said, we shouldn't be putting plants on buildings. It blurs the line. It takes away from, from architecture. And uh, obviously, I disagree with him. And we're, we're seeing a monumental shift now with, with design and architecture, whether it's driven by the architects or being... Uh, pushed by the developers, but uh, I think everyone's now understanding that plants are a critical part of how we need to build our cities for that resilience. Uh, it's not just to create a point of difference. It's it's not the sort of green bling that we're putting on buildings, but a fundamental piece of infrastructure. And if we can start to use them for food production in our cities, cleaning the air, attracting biodiversity, managing stormwater runoff, improving performance of solar panels, all of these things that I've just spoken about we have the research and the evidence to support this and if there's if the evidence is there why aren't we doing it and i think this is really the shift that we need to see amazing it's really cool to see i remember seeing the visuals of that again um it's in construction now i think but it's just going to be significant that uh that green wall uh the twisted green spine is going to make plays a major part in uh in that building's i guess identity and the wellness of the building and the it does. And it's, it's supported by, um, we're seeing a big movement from the likes of City of Melbourne and City of Sydney. City of Melbourne is uh, has introduced a, an initiative called the Green Our City Action Plan and there's potential for mandation of greenery on any new builds. And this isn't why it's been done by 
South Bank by Bueller, they, they're leading the industry, but I think there's a lot of developers that are looking for the most cost-effective way of, of building a project to make the maximum return. And I think if we, unfortunately, if we have to start mandating it, um, then that's we have to do that, but it's really going to change the, the direction that our cities are, are going. And it really stems from the pioneers who, who are people such as Bueller, um, understanding that the cities need to be designed and developed for living things you know not we we need live things we don't need dead concrete and and glass and we need other things um and yes it needs to be placed for for people there's a really good um, there's a group called the living future institute and they they're really setting the boundaries in terms of what a sustainable city or what a development should look like and they're their, I guess, motto is rather than build merely less bad versions of what we have been building, we need to be building buildings that are truly regenerative, that are actually giving back to our cities, not taking away. And there's no reason that we can't can't be doing this. The technologies exist. It's just the the appetite and the des- desire to take the risks and and be the future thinkers is is where we're getting held back. But I think we are seeing the pioneers doing this. We are seeing the government support now and I think the trajectory that we're, we're now heading on is is super exciting. No, that's really cool to hear that's happening, thank God. In terms of climate change and protecting our planet for future generations, how can we help move this forward and combat, combat climate change efficiently? I think we've we have a reliance on waiting for the government to do things and I think that's as we've seen I'm not, not going to get political but we can't be relying on governments to be telling us what we need to do so it's the the public if they demand buildings with plants on them they demand the change that we want to see then that's going to encourage the developers to build these buildings because there's a demand for it and then if the developers start doing it then the government is there to support them so we need to really have the the groundswell from the from the or the groundswell from the ground up uh, with us the public and then this will really affect the change mm. that we need to see and also we need to understand that um nothing in life is without risk mm-hmm. but the biggest risk we can take is not to do anything you know that is the the greatest risk of all so we really need to come together um through different disciplines and just problem solve we've proved um over decades that humans are fantastic at doing that it's just um, the ability for us to be able to coordinate ourselves and, and really um, storm ahead with with new ideas and and um, yeah new solutions. So um, yeah, that's that's kind of where it needs to go. Yeah, and have you got have you got have you found there's a lot of momentum around this now that that the people and architects and developers and planners are are calling on you for supporting them to deliver on that. Certainly, our our consultancy part of the business, which I'm heavily involved in, it's it's growing substantially as as within the business, uh, and we're also seeing that we're being brought on to the projects much earlier. It's unusual for someone in our type of business, whether it's a, a landscaper or putting plants on buildings, to be brought in at the early design stage. Usually, it's his is what we've designed. Now go and make it work. To be brought in at the very front, we can affect the change to make sure it can be built cost effectively and the operational costs aren't prohibitive into the future and that's really the the value that we bring and we're seeing a a big demand and and change in that direction 
Well, that's great. Have you seen uh, an increase around the world as well and in, in other cities that are doing this? Certainly around the world. It's, we, we, we see Australia as a bit of a, a laggard in some of these areas, but we're actually, I think, leading the world in a lot of examples of, of being bold and, and putting plants on buildings. We have a fantastic environment to grow plants. Sure, it's not Southeast Asia where everything grows overnight, but we have a, we have a, a good climate to have a good variety of, of plants. Um, and I think certainly um, we are leading and continuing to lead the, the world and, and set some good examples. Our brand team has been working with you on your brand, uh, kind of a, a refresh or a, a evolving your brand and your positioning. Um, how's that experience been? Oh, it's, it's, no. <laughs> no, it's been actually fantastic. It's really, you know, growing a, a small business to a big, big, bigger, small business. It, it's, it's a, it's a tough journey and it changes very regularly, you know, changes, nothing is certain, but change. So it's been, um, to, to reach this point and, and, and look back into what you, what we've been busy creating over the past 12 years, it's been, it's been such a boost for confidence that we're on the right track and we're doing the right things. And, and it's very invigorating and, um, very, refreshing i would say yeah it's like the rebirth of cool mm. our, um, our guys have enjoyed that too it's always exciting to work with an organization like you guys who are uh, you own the business you're in the business um, you're passionate about it it's funny over time same with my business you over time you kind of you're so close to it you don't see it for what for what it is or what it could be sometimes um, mm. and sometimes it gets a bit kind of confusing in terms of like, well, what, what should it be? Are we putting our energy in the right places, et cetera? And it's really cool to go in and help an organization. It's always easy to do it for somebody else. Um, go in and just say, Hey, you know, like help you to see it for what it is and to sim totally. simplify it as yes. well as jungleify it. And it's, you know, you really suffer from the fact that, oh, you know, 12 years, you, you talk about the same things and you do the same things and you assume and expect that everyone knows the same, but it's really sort of highlights that you really need to come back and, and talk to people who might hear these things for the first time and be able to do that and give them clarity from, you know, that 12 years and very succinctly be able to communicate that. Yeah, growing your growing your plants and growing your business is uh, it, it's not easy, but it's definitely there's definitely ways to do it better. That's for sure. Um, and I think any business these days has to be have a positive impact um, on on multiple fronts, um, socially, environmentally, um, and I think we certainly are doing that as a business. And I know you've recently gone through that B Corp process as well. And I think we need more organisations to be to be doing that to really focusing and, and changing what a business is about. Yeah, that's uh, great. Thank you for mentioning that too, because um, that was really important for us. And it always has been important for us to, to, to be the best that we can be, to be a better business. And none of us studied business. Um, we were all kind of learning along the way. And even though it's been 30 years for me, I'm still learning. And um, it's really cool to, I think it's really cool that you can keep evolving and learning and improving on your business um, and and your life, etc. Um, because it can it can be better. There's people around you. That's the, that's the whole purpose of this podcast is actually to hear from others of how they tackle their life, what they've done, how they came about doing what they're doing, things they've struggled with, things that they found that have benefited them. 
Um, and it's really great, great to, to, to talk to you guys today too, to have another insight from a wonderful couple that are, are, are um, doing the best that they can and, and doing it well and, and um, making a, a positive contribution to the world. So it's really cool to catch up with you guys. Um, have you felt that, have you, do you think you've designed your life? It's an interesting question. I think um, certainly when we started our first business green rooms, it was about the ability to travel and uh, and go back and see Hunter's family. Uh, and I think as the business has evolved, I'm certainly designing my life um, around the, the business and the family, but the designing my life to maximize my impact during my time on earth. I think it's, um, we're in a pretty shitty spot uh, with climate change. And I think what we do as a business has a, a massive opportunity to, to have this impact. And I want to make the most of my time for my kids, for, for Hannah, for everyone to really, um, yeah, try and have an impact on reversing the, the impacts of this mess that we've made as a, as a human race. Mm, my thoughts on designing a life is uh, certainly being very much um, about a journey or evolving journey. I don't think in the 20s I really ever even paid any attention to, to concepts such as designing life. Um, having said that, throughout the years, I think what the business has really helped me to do is uh, gain confidence about life and what what I can do. And, and in my view, that's anything I set my mind to. It is true what mom said, you know, and I didn't quite grasp it when she said that when I was a little girl, but it does, it has given me such a um, freedom to think and live and be. Um, and whilst we still live in the constraints of, of a society, it really has um, highlighted to me that life is what you make it. And that's very much where I, I want to live an extraordinary life. Um, that's extraordinary to me. And I want to squeeze everything I can out of it. And that is the, to me, that's the design. So I want to design my life, but I also want to design some accidental happiness in there. You know, I don't want to be, you know, nine to five kind of everything planned out. And, you know, it's been fundamental in, in teaching me how to just smell the roses and go with the flow. And sometimes it takes you to the most wonderful places. So, it's designed with with unintention sometimes, uh, but certainly the the being um, the master of your own life is something that you we both really thrive on. Oh, that's wonderful! You guys have been amazing, and you've got a, a great life, great family, great business, and you're making such a great contribution to uh, to doing things a lot better uh, than they have been in the past. And thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been a good, good conversation and, yeah, uh, yeah uh, appreciate your time. Yeah. Oh, we look, sweet. Look forward to seeing you on the tracks around Avalon. Yes, look forward to it too. Thank you. Thanks for listening in to this episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers with Hannah and Jock Gamal. Be sure to tune in next week where I catch up with Rob Brown, the co-founder of Casey Brown Architecture the studio behind the internationally renowned permanent camping project. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.